Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you are a first-time guest, thank you so much for choosing to join us for church this morning. We're glad you're here. We'd love to invite you to check out our church website, salemheightschurch.org, to learn more about who we are and what we have going on at the church in this season. Well, this past week was Thanksgiving, and although it was a Thanksgiving uh, unlike any other in our lifetime, we know that there's plenty to be thankful for. And so we hope that you had a chance to connect with your family in some way over the last couple of days and now are looking forward to hearing from God's word this morning. We also want to invite you, if, if you are looking for a, a little bit more room for your home church to gather, we love to set up a space for you here at the church. Uh, we have places that are set up that are clean, sanitized, there's a television, and room for your group to meet in a socially distanced way. And so if you are looking for a space with a little bit more room, you can reach out to joeg at salemheightschurch.org and he will help you get connected uh, to reserve a room here on campus. Well, we have a great set of worship for you this morning, so I want to invite you now to join us as we worship our Savior together. Well, good morning, Salem Heights Church and guests. We welcome you here today. We're so glad that you're joining us today for worship. I wanted to read a passage to you here before we get started. Uh, it's out of uh, 1 Peter um, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 7. And uh, Peter is addressing the, the folks in, in, Roman, uh, in, in the Roman uh, territory at that time. And he says this, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. He goes on to say, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, it should be uh, as, the, as God who is speaking himself. If anyone who serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. It says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And so with those words, we're going to invite you to worship with us. song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh we live for you Jesus in name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
story if we've been walking with Lord over any time at all we can look back and see the miraculous things he did to bring us into a relationship with him but how he um, over the years has continued to to grow us and to change us and to meet us at every place where we end up whatever crisis we might go through so we're gonna sing this song. I wanna encourage you to join with us. It, it's our salvation story in song. For the road that leads from darkness into light. For the hope that rescues us from endless night. For the grace that covers sin At the door where life begins For salvation reaching in To guide us through Thanks be to our God For the healing that no mortal can explain For deliverance that breaks the sinner's chains For the strength to carry on And forgiveness great and strong And the promise of your mercies ever new Thanks be to our God Hallelujah Everlasting songs will rise for all you've done. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and thanks be to 
trust that your word is deeper still for the longing and the need to have more of you and me because nothing satisfies the struggles pass away and we finally see your face and a greater glory rises into view thanks be to our God hallelujah everlasting songs will Peter's in prison now, and he's uh, addressing the, the churches in, in the Roman territory once again um, because he's recognizing that Nero's about to uh, um, execute him. And so these are the last words that he has. He had a few things he wanted people to be aware of with false teaching and things like that, but these are some of the last things that he said to the church. It goes like this. And my friends, may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior my friends may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ 
Father, we need this. We need the reminders. We need what you do. When we lift our voices and our hearts to you, we need to be reminded of your power. We need to be reminded of your love. We need to be reminded of the grace that you distribute each and every day, especially as we walk through these times that are filled with so much uncertainty. Lord God, cement those things in our hearts. We pray, we ask you, we need you desperately. We are crying out to you, asking you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them now and find the little New Testament letter of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 is where we're going to be starting this morning. And I'm really excited to uh, share this message with you as it's kind of been born out of my own personal uh, devotion time over the last couple of weeks. And um, I like to talk to us this morning about unity. I don't know about you, but uh, it just seems like we are, as a country, more divided than ever. And there's been a lot of things that have kind of been weighing on us, a lot of things that we are expressing opinion and, and emotion about. And, and while I understand all those things and, and, and probably don't even uh, understand to the fullest extent um, the viewpoints on all sides, um, I do understand that it's taken a toll on us. As I get to talk with different folks, uh, some of you, as I get to interact with our staff, as I get to even look at my own heart, I know that the, the debate and the arguing and the things that are kind of constantly being put in front of us is taking a toll. And that's why I think we need to spend a little bit of time in the book of Ephesians, because in this little letter, Paul's theme is unity. And what I love about the language of this letter is that it's not written as much as a command, 
but as a plea, as a, an invitation to please pursue unity through Christ and what that could look like. Now, for some of us, maybe when we hear the word unity, we think of uniformity, this idea of all of us thinking and believing and acting in the same way. Uh, for others, maybe when we hear the word unity, we just think of the idea of just getting along, basically kind of sacrificially living, uh, conceding just enough, making enough concessions so that we can coexist. But that's not what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians when he talks about unity. The type of unity that Paul talks about is a supernatural work made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ that brings a diverse group of individuals together uh, to function as one body, supporting each other, promoting growth in each other through love. And this gateway, this opportunity to be unified as a church, as a body of believers, is through the gospel. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again, that has created a, a pathway or a gateway, first off, to unity with God, who we were once kind of separated from because of our sin, but also is the gateway for us to have unity with one another. Because in all relationships, it, it involves at least two people who are both sinful, two people who need Christ to change their hearts, to bring them together in love, and to empower them with his Holy Spirit to live in unity. I've just been kind of working through Ephesians, all six chapters over the last couple of weeks, reading through it several times. And in the first three chapters, Paul lays out a doctrine in which he kind of describes how unity is possible, uh, what Christ accomplished on the cross, how that unity is bringing them together, both Jews and Gentiles, bringing them together as one body, which Christ is the head of. And then in the latter part of Ephesians, the, the latter three chapters, Paul spends time actually laying out some of the practical ways that we can apply this, that we can live in unity. And so our text this morning is going to be Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which really serves as the hinge point in this letter, uh, the point that where the door opens up and now we take this, this understanding and we begin to apply it practically to our lives. And so join me as we read our text this morning, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and end all. The letter of Ephesians reminds us that unity is something worth fighting for. I think we are all kind of forced to take a side, forced to have an opinion, forced to, and all the things that are kind of being debated right now, uh, it feels like we're, we're constantly fighting for our opinion and our perspective. Paul's going to make a case in Ephesians that unity is actually something worth fighting for. There's value in unity. And so there are three things that kind of stand out to me about unity in our text that I just want to highlight for us this morning. And the first is this. Unity starts with you. Look at me with me as it said back here in verse 1. It says, 
Therefore, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, his audience, to live worthy of the calling you have received. The thing about unity that makes it sometimes difficult to achieve or to experience is that oftentimes we wait for somebody else to start. We wait for somebody else to go first. Uh, perhaps you've been in a group of people and, and maybe you haven't felt necessarily a part of the group or accepted. You're waiting for somebody else to invite you or to include you. Uh, perhaps you've uh, been in a, in a place where um, you haven't really felt unified with the leader or the teacher or the coach because they have not maybe made you feel like they were approachable. Or perhaps even in an argument, a conflict with a family member or a coworker, where you're waiting for them to be the first one to apologize or to seek forgiveness in order for the relationship to move forward. What Paul reminds us throughout the book of Ephesians is that unity starts with you. Unity starts with you, you and me taking that first step. And, and our model for this is Jesus. Uh, look with me over here in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, Paul says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He goes on a little further in verses 8 and 9 saying this, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so no one can boast. And then finally here in verse 13 of chapter 2, Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus went first. He is our example. Uh, before, before this work of the gospel, we were alienated from God. We were strangers. We were separated from him by sin, by our rebellion. And yet it says that he, because of his love for us, initiated that pathway to unity. He took that first step. He came and he gave of his life to an undeserving people. Think about that. Sometimes the thing that prevents us from pursuing unity is the other person. It says in Ephesians 2 that we were sinful. We were dead in our trespasses. We were living a rebellious life. We were not deserving of his love, and yet he took that first step. That's what grace is. Grace is undeserved. And I love how it says here in verse 8 that this gift of the gospel, this gift of salvation, is that. It's a gift. It was given by God to us, no strings attached, to us freely. Unity starts with you. Because here's the bottom line. Unity does not start on its own. Someone has to initiate it. And we are called to be unified. We are called to be one body. We are called to be one church. The beauty of this idea, though, is that, again, unity does not mean uniformity. The reality is that unity almost implies diversity. Throughout Ephesians, Paul talks about how God has brought together a very diverse group of people, that you and I are, are different, and yet that is not something that should prevent us from coming together. In fact, it's the diversity that makes us strong, that makes us function as a whole, and yet it won't happen on its own. Unity starts with you. The second thing I think that I see here in, in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the problem with unity 
is you. The problem with unity is you. He goes on in verse 2 to say, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is what we're called to do. You see here, Paul outlines four qualities that are going to foster unity between uh, you and someone else. He calls this to humility, a life of service and sacrifice. He calls this to gentleness, this idea of being um, under control, being approachable. He calls us to have patience, meaning to be resistant to retaliating or to avenging some sort of wrongdoing that's been done to yourself. And he calls us here to bear with one another in love. And this just has the idea that, that we are to continue to love someone even if they've offended us or what they're doing displeases us. So what prevents unity then? If these are the things that foster unity, if these are the things that cause it to grow, well, then the opposite would be that which prevents unity. Selfishness, a lack of self-control, retaliation, impatience. I'm reminded of what James says in chapter 4 of his little letter, where he says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? James' point is simple. It's easy for us in conflict to think that the problem is someone else. But James reminds us that actually the problem is me. It's the sinful desires in my heart that lead and contribute to conflict. And so here's the bottom line. If you can't find unity around you, check your heart. Because the problem with unity is you. The third point that kind of jumps out to me from this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 is that unity will require something from you. He urges us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, and he, he calls us to do that with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love. And then he says this in verse 3, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity takes work. If you've been a part of any kind of group, whether it be a, a band, an orchestra, a team, whether a business team or a sports team, even being part of a family, you know that unity takes work. It takes effort. And Paul is calling us here to make every effort, to make this something that we, that we really strive for, uh, that we fight for. Make every effort to maintain this gift of unity. Again, we didn't create it, but we have now been given the potential to be unified through the gospel. And so we are called to make every effort to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why does it require effort? Well, it's because in every relationship, there's at least two sinful people. Two people who are going to have that battle inside of them to be selfish, to want their way, to want you to agree, to want you to do what they say. We struggle with pride and control and selfish desires. And so it's going to take some effort. And so in, in the following chapters from where he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul probably understanding that his audience is hearing this charge for unity, this call for unity, 
and probably going, how does, what does that look like? How is that even possible? And he begins to lay out how it practically will be seen in relationships. He talks about how, what unity will look like among the church, among the different people, the diverse group that makes up the body of Christ. He goes on to talk about what unity will look like in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And then he talks about what it will look like between parents and children. And then he talks about what it will look like between a boss and their employee. He begins to lay out all of these examples, providing for us a blueprint of how unity will be achieved in those relationships. But then in chapter 6, we see this really familiar passage. It's the, it's the passage that talks about putting on the armor of God. And it's how Paul wraps up this letter that he wrote to the Ephesians, urging them to be unified. He says in chapter 6, starting in verse 11, Finally, be strengthened in the Lord, and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. I was reading recently on the topic of uh, marriage counseling and in his book, Counsel for Couples, Jonathan Holmes talks about something that's kind of unique here about this passage in Ephesians. He says, I'm always surprised when this portion of Ephesians is disconnected from the larger context of Paul's letter. Paul's teaching on spiritual warfare directly follows instruction and teaching on relationships. The, the movement of the letter culminates with this section on spiritual warfare, and I believe Paul is indicating that the spiritual battle we are engaged in is not happening with lightsabers, pitchforks, or seances. It is happening in our relationships. Satan attacks our relationships within the church, marriage, parenting, and our work. What better way to disrupt God's plan than to attack God's people? I think Paul is saying we have now been given this opportunity to be unified, something we couldn't do apart from the gospel. We can be unified to God. We can be unified to each other. Different, diverse group of people coming together on the foundation of Jesus Christ, supporting each other, helping each other grow, being effective for God as one body. And we can do this, and yet what would Satan love to do? He would love to destroy all of that. See, Satan loves destroying relationships because unity in relationships glorifies God. It glorifies God because it reflects God's very nature. Uh, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they live in relationship with each other. And that stamp has been placed on his creation. But yet, if, if God, the relationships that God has set up, whether it be the marriage or parenting or in the workplace, if those have been separated, then God's nature isn't reflected. He would also want to attack that because the unity that exists in the relationship between believers reflects God's powerful work in our lives. It's a testimony to the power of the gospel. Satan wants to have nothing to do with that. And so Paul here at the end of his letter on unity, he's saying, hey, friends, 
unity is going to be under attack. Whether it's the world agitating you, whether it is your flesh betraying you, or whether it's the devil trying to attack you and divide you, we need to armor up each day to prevent unity from being broken. We need to fight for unity because it's going to be under attack. As I think about our church and I think about you and, and me, I, I think this is true. I think that, that the devil would want nothing more than to divide us in our marriages and in our homes and at the workplace and as a church. He would want us to fight. He would want us to, to, to hurl harsh words, to, to lack grace and understanding and mercy towards one another. He would not want us to be humble. He would not want us to be gentle. He would not want us to bear with one another in love, being patient with each other. No, he would want us to pick sides. He would want us to, to use our words for, for hurt, to tear down. And Paul is saying, don't let that happen. Understand that in relationships, the enemy is not that other person. It's, it's these other enemies that the Bible clearly identifies. Our flesh, spiritual warfare, the, the ideas of the world, these are all working against us. And he's saying, put on the armor of God. Put on truth. Put on righteousness. Put on uh, the gospel of peace. Take the word of God and let that inform your decisions. Let that be the thing that causes you to stay unified. Friends, we cannot let the enemy divide us in this season. As a church, as a family, we can't let it happen. We've got to put on the armor of God. We've got to fight for unity. But we can't fight this fight using physical tools. We can't fight it using our mental prowess because the battle is a spiritual battle. The unity that we have is a spiritual unity. And so we must fight it spiritually. We must put on the armor of God. We must die to self and say, the Spirit of God, change my life. Allow my desires to be desires to serve and to sacrifice, to, to be kind and gentle, to treat others with love. And in doing so, we glorify God. And we are a testimony to a broken world of what is possible in Christ through the gospel. So in this season, as there's a lot of things that are, are, are calling us to join a side and to, to take a side and to, to get involved in the fight, I believe the Lord has given us something to fight for, and that is unity. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for doing the work necessary for, for me to have a relationship with you. And God, I thank you for the way that through that gospel, you take me and you place me into a family made up with all kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds, God. And yet you, through your gospel and through your Holy Spirit, you form us and unite us to become a family, to become the body of Christ. And God, I just pray in this season, as there's so many things, 
So many narratives, so many agendas, so many ideas out there that are competing for our attention, that are wanting to drag us into picking a side. That God, that the thing we would fight for would be unity, God. That we would fight to, to be a people that serve rather than look to be served. That we'd be a people who are understanding and, and patient rather than quick to judge and, and quick to alienate. God, let that be our testimony. Not because of our great strength or our great intellect and not because we're just choosing to lay down and, and just accept what other people are telling us. But that God, we can serve you and trust you and that we can be unified in you. God, I pray that you would protect our church, that you would protect the families that make up our church, that you would protect our staff, that you protect every single person hearing this message who's part of the body of Christ, that you would protect us from division, that you'd protect us from fighting, that you'd protect us from the things that will destroy your glory and defame your name, and that you would keep us unified so that we could glorify you and be a testimony of what the gospel can do in the lives of broken people. God, thank you for bringing us close to you, and I now pray that you help us stay close to one another in this time. I pray this in your son's beautiful name.